Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Are you needing a safe space to learn how you can get your mind right? Tune into Imani's State of Mind, a weekly podcast hosted by psychiatrist and TV personality Dr. Imani Walker and co-host comedian Meg Scoop Thomas. Two smart, successful women and mothers sharing their personal and professional experiences to help normalize conversations around mental health. This is not your average mental health show. Each week, they break down what's happening in news, pop culture, and their very own experiences managing mental health. Together, you will laugh, keep it real, and create a safe space where everyone can get help with their issues. Nothing is off the table. Dr. Imani Walker and Meg Scoop Thomas discuss everything from relationships with yourself, with your spouse, and your parents to the realities of postpartum depression and anxiety. Do not forget to take a deep breath. Find your calm and get into Imani's state of mind with new episodes dropping every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. The first vote-by-mail ballots are hitting people's mailboxes and the earliest in-person early voting starts this week. Do you know how you're voting? If your answer is, it's September, I haven't thought about it. Like, am I going to go to my Halloween parties dressed as Mando? Am I going to go as a character from Legally Blonde? I haven't decided yet. Uh, Get off my back. This is the week to get your shit together on both counts, both for voting and for your Halloween costume. Voter suppression efforts have ramped up following the 2020 election, making it even more critical to ensure that every American has access to the ballot box. At Vote Save America, you can find the most up-to-date information on what you need to make sure your vote is counted in all 50 states and the District of Columbia Give Puerto Rico the statehood as well. Use our ballot-ready tool to request your ballot. Find out how you can return it or get a reminder for when in-person early voting locations become available in your state. To win in November, it's going to take every single one of us making our plan to vote, getting involved, and reminding everyone we know to do the same. Once you've made your plan to vote, visit votesaveamerica.com slash everylastvote to find out what you can do next, including donating to the Every Last Vote Fund to directly support the work of community organizations, organizers, and volunteers in states that are actively working to battle disenfranchisement in communities of color, including in Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and more. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for House of the Dragon, Episode 5, and Rings of Power, Episodes 1 through 4. We're releasing two episodes again this week, so be sure to check out both for our full conversation, which contains spoilers. My name is Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Podcast, where we're diving deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. It's another multi-episode week. There's so much to talk about, so we're releasing, once again, two episodes. Episode one, we'll have our continuing coverage of House of the Dragon, including a recap of episode five, plus the Ask the Maester segment, and a discussion of the first half of Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, and our good friend Celebrimbor. 
<laughs> episode two will feature conversations about She-Hulk, episode six, plus our interview with the awesomely talented showrunner of She-Hulk, Jessica Gao, and a discussion of the Disney Plus series and the latest in the Star Wars television offerings and or episodes one through three that have been released on Disney+. Plus. If you want to jump around, as usual, check out the show notes for the timestamps. And of course, joining us today, first of her name, number one, comic book historian straight from the Citadel, straight from the archives of Marvel and DC and Image and all the rest is the great Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm ready to talk about House of the Dragon. I'm feeling passionate. <laughs> Folks, it's wedding season. It's cuffing season. Woo! It's getting busted <laughs> in the face season. So let's talk about it. House of the Dragon. Episode five, We Light the Way, written by Charmaine de Gratte and directed by Claire Kilner. It's a doozy. First of all, we open in Runestone in the Vale, where we get to meet Lady Rhea Royce, who we have to say has been slandered by her of late husband, David Targaryen, who is comparing her to farm animals. Obviously, you shouldn't do that to anyone. But the initial reaction upon meeting Rhea Royce is she seems really cool. She's hot. She's cool. She's a talented rider. She's badass. She has armor. She's a good fighter. The funniest thing is she also very much looks like Damon's type. Like, that's the irony of it all is... What's going on? I think it's like, it's all about one, chaos. Two, yeah. Power. He doesn't like someone telling him what he has to do or who he That's has it. to That's marry. That's the thing. Because the truth That's is, she it. seems like a great match. And also, again, very cool. Definitely going to go down as one of the legendary brief appearances in Game of Thrones history. There's a question about, lots of questions about the errands, about Damon going to the Vale and other things regarding this episode. So stay tuned for that. I will say it was nice to see this being House Royce, it was nice to see the bronze detailing on the armor of both Lady Rhea and Sir Gerald. This callback to kind of ancient lineage of the bronze kings of House Royce. So that was really cool to see. What was not cool to see was Damon flat out murdering his wife. That was terrible. The worst thing is he murders her in the most cruel way because he murders her in a way that essentially can be seen as a, a hunting accident. Right. Which also manages to smear her reputation as a brilliant hunter and a famed rider. Yeah. So it's really bleak on many levels, but it's also so horribly cruel. It was cruel. Though I will say she does get a very sick burn just before she dies. She gets a burn in and it, it's a not inaccurate <laughs> burn, honestly, for knowing what we've seen about Damon. Oh, we've seen it. Yep. <laughs> we've seen Damon, quote, not be able to finish. And we should also say that, man, so of course, Fire and Blood and the various novellas, again, are fictional histories written from the perspective of various unreliable narrators. And Damon, what we know from the histories is that Damon does get away with it mm -hmm. because this to book readers, I think, should have come as a surprise, though there are kind of like slightly mysterious undertones about the way her death is described in the histories is basically, you know, a hunting accident. She dies hawking. So Damon gets away with it, which sucks. But I would also add that part of what makes her death seem a bit suspicious to readers is that any death that is just like, oh, 
He got a stomach ache and he died. What a terrible accident. It, it was almost natural causes, but probably yeah. not. Or he died in a fire. Yeah. <laughs> he, he died in a hunting accident. We all know what that really means. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're just primed to look at that with a suspicious mm-hmm. eye. But yeah, again, Damon got away with it, which sucks. We go to the narrow sea where King Viserys' flagship is sailing to Driftmark, where he's going to kind of nail down the marriage deal that would see Rhaenyra Targaryen betrothed to Sir Laenor. Oh, I want to say one thing. I want to address this about the pronunciation of Leonor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Lena first Leonor and Lena. As a book reader and a person who's spent many years of that portion of being a book reader, not like having any interaction with the audiobooks, mm-hmm. I just have the pronunciation of these really, really weird character names. Now, some people are going to say, oh, it's phonetical. Okay. Set that aside. I'm dumb then. <laughs> but I just have the pronunciation of these characters in my, I have said them yeah. in my head for many a year without ever hearing anybody say them back to me or hearing like any kind of like audio content that has the correct pronunciation. Another example of this, I think we talked about this previously, is the comic book artist Bill Sinkevich yes. of Marvel Comics and other fame for years and years and years because I'd never heard anybody say that name. I had read that name as Sankowitz and had said so in, in my head. I mm-hmm. It was Bill Sankowitz. And it was legitimately not until maybe eight months ago that I heard someone <laughs> pronounce his name. And I'm like, oh, shit. He actually now signs it with like phoneticals to explain it because it is a really unique name. But yeah, no, no, I feel you. When we know this stuff, we read it in our heads and then it takes something like an adaptation or hearing the creator say it for us to know the correct inverted commas way. Yes. It absolutely had curdled in my head, you know, many of these pronunciations over the years. And so that's what that is. I'll say it correctly from now on, and I apologize, but like... We were both guilty, but Lena is innocent. <laughs> that's where it comes from. And I would imagine I'm not alone out there. Okay, we go to King's Landing where Queen Allison says goodbye to her good father, Otto, who she got fired. <laughs> now, she's the queen, and she would like her father not to leave, but of course, it is the king's decision. And Otto very graciously completely blames his daughter for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an Otto hater. I truly am. Like, <sighs> he is such a sucker. He can't, can we just please remember that she is in this situation because of him, because of his scheming, and she has been trying to do the best by everyone, and Alicent has just been put in terrible situation after terrible situation, and he didn't even have the grace to be like, it's okay, this is the game, I understand. He was like, you did this, you picked your friend over me, and everything's going to go to shit now, and you better get ready. Because it's going to be a problem. Allison says, listen, I believed Rhaenyra when she told me that she didn't couple with Prince Damon. And also, shouldn't you have, like, been a little bit more chill about trying to put oh. your grandson, my son, Aegon on the throne? And Otto was like, listen, the king's going to die. War is coming. Rhaenyra is going to kill your kids. Which, like, maybe it's not an, a completely unfounded fear. Let's put it that way. But also, like. Allison and Rhaenyra should actually just talk this yeah, out. Yeah, like, yeah. Why are we letting all these interlocutors like be in between this thing and, and stoke all this paranoia? This episode is like the most painful yelling at the screen. And like, it really is. Please just have a conversation. Just have a conversation. Because the truth is, the thing that I think is really messed up in this moment is when I first watched it, 
I thought, oh, like in his final moments with her, Otto's actually giving her some some good advice. And then when I rewatched it before the episode, I was like, wait a minute, is he actually just stoking her worst fear and playing on her darkest paranoias to cause a problem? When, I mean, look, Renera, like everyone in this show and kind of what makes the show so special, everyone's making mistakes. Alison's making mistakes. Renera's making mistakes. There's a lot of blind spots here. Everybody is flawed, but Renera is not murder a child flawed. Rhaenyra is not Damon. Rhaenyra is not murder her best friend's child flawed. Like there is a conversation that could be had. I mean, to not get too into the weeds of like succession and stuff, Rhaenyra could just have a kid and marry it to Aegon. Like that seems like a very good plan that they could make, you know? They could do that. Now I think everybody's blinded by their own personal ambitions. And again, Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily unfounded. Mm -mm. This is assuming that Alicent and Rhaenyra never talk. Alicent, at this point in time, and we would imagine going forward, would certainly never leap at the opportunity to murder Rhaenyra's children, should she have children down the line. And Rhaenyra, from what we've seen of her, is not the sort to be like, let's chop off young Aegon's head. Yeah. That said, there are people around them. Oh, definitely. I mean, look at Otto. Yeah. Otto right now is basically saying like, Rhaenyra will probably, she'll have to kill your children in order to seal her authenticity to really shore up her reign. He was ready to essentially kill Rhaenyra socially and potentially literally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because of this scenario. So it's a tragic, we are truly, the thing I think is most interesting about this show is the lengthy and kind of drawn out version of the fall of the Targaryens that we're kind of getting to see. Just every single misstep and miscommunication and paranoia, it's all leading to what we know happens because of Game of Thrones. But it's so interesting. And it's so tragic. I was so upset this episode. It's tragic. It's so sad. It's very sad. I mean, you, we forget that, like, Alicent and Rhaenyra are, like, 14 years old. They are babies. 15 years old. They're babies. They don't have any, like, idea about how any of this shit works. And here is Otto saying, Rhaenyra's going to kill your kids in order to solidify her grip on power. And what is the flip side of that? The flip side of that, it's implied, it's not directly stated, but it's certainly heavily implied that... Alicent should steal herself Mm -hmm. for that exact action. You might have to think about doing that. And Otto closes with, you're no fool, and yet you have chose not to see it. (laughs) Either you prepare Aegon to rule, or you cleave to Rhaenyra and pray for her mercy. Man, Reese Ivans has a way of, like, sounding like he is dredging up, Mm -hmm. like, the gravel of his soul while he is delivering these lines. And then they embrace, and Otto leaves. Everyone's coming for an Emmy. Oh, big time. Every episode, I feel like they are lining it up. I mean, Paddy and Reese in this episode is just like once again, and I I thought in last episode they sealed it, but this episode is just so great. On Driftmark, Lord Corliss is playing power games. He doesn't Mm -hmm. come out to meet the royal party, an incredibly egregious snub that Lord Lionel Strong, the Hand of the King, is fucking furious about. The only one there to meet the royal party is Sir Laenor playing at swords with his boyfriend, Sir Joffrey Lonmouth. Lady Lena comes out to say, oh, sorry about this. And then when they finally do run into Corliss, 
The king has to meet him in the Hall of Nine where Corliss <laughs> is ensconced with the Driftwood throne surrounded by all his trophies. It's like one of, it's an ultimate power move to say, King, you have to meet me in my trophy room. I'm not even going to come and see you. What a dick move. Yeah, and not just that. It's all so intentional as we see oh, yes. when we get back there. Corliss has plans and designs that honestly, very relatable and probably good plans and designs. In the Godswood back at King's Landing, we get our first real extended taste of what Laris, the clubfoot strong, that's what the realm has nicknamed him, not us, has in store for us over the course of this story. He just happens to run into Queen Alicent there. Whoops, he's just hanging out there, casually hanging out there as he always seems to be in the right place. And then he's just kind of making small talk. And he's like, oh, it's terrible about your dad. He got fired. Yeah, the realm is so much weaker now for this. And uh, also, you know, it's like so weird what happened with Rhaenyra. Oh, 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 you didn't hear about this? Oh, she was really sick. Oh, something bad must have happened. Yeah, she must have been ill. I hope she's okay because I saw Grandmaster Melos dropping off some plan tea. What? You didn't? Oh, yeah. And hopefully she's all right for the good of the realm. One can only pray for her quick return to health. And Allison is clearly shaken by this, as Laris wanted. But... This is what Laris, I think, will do as we go forward. Just saying, we told you keep an eye on him. Yes. When he made his little move into the tea room of, like, the highest royal women in the world and was like, oh, I'm too weak to fight. Can I just sit here and definitely not listen to all your secrets? This is what his currency is. And he That's is right. making moves, as we see in this episode, that are just, like, bold-faced. <laughs> I'm eager to kind of dive into... What the fuck makes him tick? Because I think book readers will know mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. the histories often say of Laris that he's an enigma, that nobody really knows what his motivations are. And I'm eager to see if those are more clear as the show progresses, because, you know, some of the context they've been adding has been really amazing. Like, you look no further than the death of Lady Royce. So I'm, I'm eager to see if we learn more about what exactly makes Lara stick because certainly Lionel, his dad, seems like a good enough guy. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no suggestion that he's been mistreated in any way. And then his brother, Harwin, who we meet for the first time here in this episode, also seems like a solid guy. They're sitting next to each other at the, at the wedding later in the episode and talking amongst themselves. So it's interesting to see, like, why did Laris turn out to be such a poisoned figure? I wonder if there's two things. I think he has a, so far from what we've seen, like a kind of chaotic streak. Like he enjoys kind of sowing the seeds of instability. But I wonder if it's also like so often in Game of Thrones about one's own station. I think it's that too. And like ambition and maybe he doesn't think Hand of the King is even a good enough place. And he knows he'll never probably be there because of his disability. I wonder if they're going to yeah. do it because they do a really good job of, even though with dramatic irony, we can watch it and be like, wow, this guy's a snake. In those moments, he seems incredibly empathetic and like he's like yeah. giving good advice. I mean, even in the wedding, like we'll get to later, when he's talking to his very chill brother and I'm like, my guy, I know you're trying to start a war. Like you're you're just saying these chaotic things. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're that could essentially even like, I mean, you just went to Alison and acted like you were a friend and now you're saying yeah. things that could make her seem to be a traitor. Like I'm so interested. He's definitely, I think this episode with the introduction of Rhea Royce, R.I.P. R.I.P. Big R.I.P. And this expansion of Laris is like, we're getting more to that Game of Thrones 
scenario that we talked about, like with these exterior characters on different lands and each one having their own different agendas and how they play into the main action of what mm. we're seeing, which I think is really exciting. I think you're right on about the way Laris's disability frames him for the rest of the realm, because this is an intensely patriarchal society, as this whole story is about that. And, you know, the basis of power in this patriarchy is the way that these people perceive manhood. And mm-hmm. manhood means strength. Manhood means you're a great warrior. And Laris would have been roundly dismissed because of his disability. Dismissed you know, almost completely as a man and as a human being, probably, if not for the fact that he's, you know, related to the son of a very important lord. That said, he would have been looked at in a way that would have cast him outside of regular society. And he would have been aware of that. And surely that has not felt good to him. Yeah. Back in the Hall of Nine, Corliss and Viserys with Rhaenys at their side, get to brass tacks about, okay, what is this wedding? How would it work? What does the wedding mean? So whose name am I to assume Corliss asks hilariously? So cheeky. <laughs> that, uh, so Rhaenyra will take Laenor's name, right? I mean, Rhaenyra, uh, Valerian, and the kids? Yeah, what's, what's up with And that? the kids will be Valerians? <laughs> and, you know, Viserys, I think, gives him a really good deal. Of course, Rhaenyra is going to keep her name. Like, we don't do hyphens in Westeros, so. <laughs> <laughs> so she's going to be Rhaenyra Targaryen, don't worry. Okay, that's going to stay that. But their kids, you know, will turn Valerian and certainly upon uh, their ascension to Driftmark, et cetera. And this seems like a great deal to them, you know, unless, but of course, like their child that ascends to the Iron Throne will be a Targaryen, but the, but the children that go to Driftmark will be Valerians. And that's a, it's a great deal. Rhaenyra and Lenor go and take a walk to kind of get to know each other. And this is, I think, one of the most important conversations for understanding mm-hmm. Rhaenyra, who is just a very accepting person. It is, of course, well-known, certainly in court circles, amongst the noble houses of Westeros that Lenor is gay. There's no term for sexual orientation in this world like that. They would just say he prefers men. But it's known and joked about, you know, because this is seen as something that's like funny and or shameful. But Rhaenyra, to her credit, is just like, listen, we understand what this is. Like, we get it. Like, this is a political marriage that our families are brokering mm-hmm. for the good of the realm to shore up the strength of House Targaryen and bind it to their ancient allies, the Valerians. Okay, let's do our what we have to do in order to support that. But outside of that, I'll do my thing, you do your thing, that's fine. Yeah. And that is a wonderfully modern arrangement. Yeah, I love it. And it it fits in to the realities of, I think, what living in like a court situation would be like. Yeah. Also, Rhaenyra learning from the men who came before her. Why shouldn't right. these kings are allowed to do whatever they want, they bed do whatever they, they want, want, have as many bastards as they want. So why shouldn't she and Lenor create an arrangement that works for them, where they can be friends, Absolutely. where they can yeah. enjoy the things that they want to enjoy. And I just think, yeah, it's it's so smart and generous and clever and a little bit selfish because she wants that freedom too, but it's really good. And the scene is so beautifully shot as they walk on the beach yeah. and it's pretty amazing. Lenor looks very happy yeah, very by happy. the end of it. Like this is kind of more than what he could have expected because it's clear that while his mom, Rhaenys, 
understands that he is gay, his dad is a bit more like, this is just what guys do. They're just having fun. Corliss is just like, oh. Spartans did so, it. So uh, did you sense any chemistry out there on the beach? You know, she has grown comely. In yeah, the years she, she's, she's looking <laughs> good. I'm sure he's already She's looking fan. good. And Renice is like, like, you know, yeah. what are you talking about? You know what you're, like, come on, you know what's going on. Corliss is like, oh, he'll grow out of it. Yeah. Grow out of it. And it's like, no, okay. And then, you know, there's a nice conversation between Lador and Sir Joffrey later where Joffrey is like, I've tried this day, but like maybe this is for the best. And then, you know, they start talking fatefully about the rumor that Rhaenyra has a secret lover mm-hmm. and trying to figure out who it is. Yes. That's all well and good. And that's natural. That's human nature to, to wonder that. Of course it is. Don't do that at the wedding. That's all I'm going to say. Don't do that at the wedding. But also as well, like the thing that I think is so gutting here is like to watch the way that Joffrey, who truly loves Lenor, supports this decision and understands. Yeah, he understands it. And sees it as something positive. And then to compare that to what we're about to see with the biggest heel on the show, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait to get to this guy. It's really, they do great juxtaposition here between what a real relationship is, what love is, what support is. I agree. And what we thought could have come out of a, a relationship between Kristen and, and Rhaenyra. Let's go to Heeltown. So we're back on the King's flagship. It's heading from Driftmark back to King's Landing. Now, Kristen Cole is Rhaenyra's sworn sword in addition to being a member of the King's. You can be a sworn sword. You can be any knight. And swear your sword to somebody, as we saw, you know, uh, with Brienne of Tarth, right? You don't necessarily need to be a member of the Kingsguard, but he's also a member of the Kingsguard so that he's her bodyguard. That said, they have had a sexual relationship, perhaps more than one at this point. That seems to be the implication here is that something else has occurred in the time that's It might have continued. And I got to say, if you've got this secret very, very dangerous relationship, certainly for Cole, who is sworn never to have sexual relations or father children or get married, et cetera, the penalty for which is very serious. It seems to me like a really dumb thing to come out in your shirt sleeves, no armor on, like you just literally got out of bed in a very casual way and then chat with the princess of the blood, like on the deck of the royal ship. There is a man cleaning the deck behind them when this conversation is going on. Like he's down on the lower deck, but you can see him behind them. And the thing that annoys me about it, but honestly, like I'm now understanding Kristen is a ridiculous man. So that's his problem. (laughs) He could have literally just put on the armor. She's out there in the middle of the night on the deck. Make it look legitimate, yeah. So go out there in the armor to protect her. But no, he is on one and he's about to make a... The thing that pains me the most is this conversation begins like a fairy tale until you realize the real motivations behind it, which are just so depressing. (laughs) So I will just say of Kristen, clearly he's never caught feelings before, Mm -hmm. right? For anyone. And we heard back during the episode with the hunt as they were riding through the woods that like he's not had many relationships, certainly not with a woman of the status of Princess Rhaenyra ever. And it's clear from the conversation that ensues there in the deck of the ship that Cole is fucking in love with Princess Rhaenyra at this point. When we recap this section, I have a different reading of this, actually. I think he is, as we later hear, the fantastic Game of Thrones term, cuntstruck. I do believe, (laughs) I do believe that is true, but I believe he is more invested in his own station 
and honor than he actually is with Renera. I think that that's right as well. Yeah. I think they can exist alongside. But he obviously really likes her. I, I, I mean, he then proposes the most insane thing. This is one of the funniest, quietly the funniest lines I think ever in House of the Dragon slash Game of Thrones history. Kristen Cole says to Rhaenyra, hey, I was hanging out in Sunspear for a little while. And when I was there, I watched them unloading ships. And now I'm an expert in ships and travel. (laughs) I saw them unload oranges and spices and cinnamon. And I thought, hey, where does that stuff come from? And now I think what makes sense is for me to take you around the world because I saw like three or four ships get unloaded. And He is what? a naive man. <laughs> what are you talking? I think you should bring shame on your name and your entire house by running away with me to Essos. Destroy your already very sick father. Yeah, because I saw like four crates of oranges once. <laughs> what? And so very, very rightly, Rhaenyra is like, what? No. Wait, can't we just like, I become queen and we keep having a relationship, but we just keep it very quiet? Like, can't we do that? Not even that. She's like, I actually went out of my way because I care about you and enjoy what we have to make an arrangement with my future husband, which by the way, probably could have got me killed if I'd have read that situation wrong. Sure. Where I said, look, we're going to have a baby, but we can just, you know, me and you can do whatever we want. There is entire relationships, love stories, families in Game of Thrones that were born that way. It is quite normal. Cole is not having it. (laughs) No having it. So Rhaenyra turns him down and Cole says, so you want me to be your whore after she proposes? Like, why don't we just do what we're doing? And he is clearly upset about the fact that he broke his vows and now sees himself because they're not going to make it official by, I guess, eloping, he feels like he is a whore in his own words, which is ridiculous. We got a good thing going here, Kristen. Why are you fucking it up? Right? There is like a really brilliant moment in this. And I think you can really tell that you have like a a female writing team, female director. There's this moment where he gets in her face and he's like, I broke my vows for you. And he's like, that's all I have to my fucking name. And it's like, there's so much anger and he's so stressed and scared and angry and hateful in that moment that I just think it really tells you a lot. Like, I do feel like if this actor wasn't so good, this could feel like a bit too much of a quick turnaround. But there's something in it, this like naivety, like you said, because she even says to him, she's like, well, I'm going to go and marry you for like a bushel of oranges. She's like, no. Like, do you know? she, I love the line when she's like, I am the crown. She's like, yeah, there's no crown without is. me. There's no Westeros. Like, yeah, it's this was such a hard scene for me. And because it's so sad. To me, it's really sad for Renera because she went out of her way to take this person into her confidence. and to, And also, I will just say, I know that they're not making it very clear here, but it is obvious that there is quite a significant age difference between the two of them. So I also feel like Kristen Cole, if we're getting into the weeds of it, you slept with a child and now you need (laughs) to just behave yourself. And like, also everyone knows the wall, the night's guard, the king's guard, they're always banging. Like they all have sex all the time. Like, don't worry about it. Like you, it's, it's okay. We can keep this quiet. Kristen Cole, if you also, we can keep this quiet if you don't walk around like unclothed, talking casually. to the princess casually, 
while the king and others are below deck, like right below and you. And there is a man cleaning the deck. And also, <laughs> yeah, like, if you are the queen's consort, essentially, yeah. guess what? There's no rules for you. That's kind of how it is until somebody else deal. is in power. Like you are, that is a really great deal. And you know what? I respect anyone's right to say like, that doesn't work for me. I completely agree. You don't have to blow up everyone's whole lives because that is what you're about to do. Blow up everything. I completely agree. Listen, it's very important to say agency and consent is important. If that doesn't work for Kristen, fair play. Okay, we break it off. I think it's a great deal. Renera would be chill with that too. She would just be like, okay. Yeah, yeah. but like, don't be a dick about it. <laughs> anyway. He's about to be a top tier, legendary Game of Thrones dick. A, a major, iconic, historic Game of Thrones dick. They get back to the Red Keep. King Viserys collapses. He was not looking well on the trip. He has been sick. He looks shitty. He has either a cold or a flu. And of course, as we're going to see, his left arm is in a really perilous state. Looking like leprosy at this point or something akin something. to a leprosy or something. He's he's looking very ill and he's hiding it. But I think part of the reason Corliss, for example, felt so brave as to really make a lot of demands rather than just being like, of course my son will marry the queen, was because right. Viserys was coughing. He was weak. He felt like he, he could push him to around. secure that safety for Rhaenyra. So yeah, he's not looking good. The scene on the deck of the ship kind of emotionally sets up what follows when Kristen is summoned by the queen. This guy. <laughs> you could tell he's nervous about it. And so Rhaenyra is clearly from her perspective, asking in a kind of roundabout way, getting to it, about the, the allegations that Alicent is kind of like, you know, in a roundabout way, getting her courage up to kind of ask about the allegations that Rhaenyra slept with Prince Damon. And she's kind of getting to the point when Kristen Cole absolutely folds the fuck up and is like, yeah, I had sex with the princess. Please don't cut my dick off and torture me. Just cut my head off. Just execute me. That's it. I want a warrior's death. That's it. And the queen is shocked, but she feels clearly betrayed, feels lied to. Her friend lied to her face. Yeah, because she specifically promised that she was still a maiden. That's the thing I think. The Damon thing, this kind of goes along with what Renera told you. That's not who she slept with. She could have come to... Alison in that moment and been at least slightly honest, though I would argue Renera yeah. was also probably trying to protect Kristen Cole, ironically. But Kristen folded. Like, this motherfucker folded is a snitch up. so quickly. Folded. He snitched, snitched, snitched. He could have just waited to see what she was going to say. But no. He just folded the fuck up. And, you know, I've seen people say, like, why is Alison so mad? She has no leg to stand on. She had previously been lying about her relationship with King Viserys. Fair. That said, one, just because something makes logical sense doesn't mm -hmm. mean it. that's how yeah. anyone responds emotionally. Like, just because I wronged someone first doesn't mean I'm not mad when they, I feel like they betrayed me. She's a child, but She's I think the real reason that this is such a pivotal turning point for her, she put her word against her father's. Mm -hmm. I still think she did the right thing. I, I agree. She was an incredible friend to Rhaenyra. But I do also believe that if Rhaenyra had been honest to Alison, Alison probably just still would have lied to the king, but would have found a way to make it so Otto didn't look so bad. I think the problem here is Otto has now been kicked out. She sees that as her one kind of 
true ally that she had, even though I wouldn't agree with that. And now that is what she's mad about. Is like, I vouched for you. You lied. Now my dad's gone. And now there's this weird crying Kingsguard in my room, like telling me some traitorous business. I think there's several things and I think you're exactly right. I think there's also the fact that Alicent feels trapped by this relationship she has with Viserys, this much older man. She, in her mind, is doing everything by the book that has been set out for her. She's doing her duty. She's producing the air. She's sleeping with this older man. She's trying to comport herself in in a queenly royal faction that everybody can be proud of. And she's not having any fucking fun. Meanwhile, here's Rhaenyra, the crown princess... Who's always complaining. Who should be doing what she, exactly what Alicent is doing, and yet is always complaining about, oh my God, I have to meet all these men who want to marry me. Who are young and not rotting to death. Who are young and not rotting to death. And then when her friend asks her, okay, so did this happen? Lies to her face about it. And then it turns out has been sleeping with one of the knights of the Kingsguard who, by the way, are supposed to protect me too. Can I trust them? And also who, oh, that's a really good point actually about, Yeah. doesn't this exactly, I never realized this right until we had this conversation. Doesn't that exactly play into Otto's paranoia play? Exactly the thing, yeah. And also I think the other thing that I really love about this moment is like, I'm sure that in Alison's head, because she is like smart as fuck, she is also like, you slept with one who would just come in here and tell me that? Like, she literally gives him, yeah, yeah you're, you're sloppy. sloppy. That On top of everything else, you're messy. She's like, yeah. I even said to him, like, you are loyal to her, understandably. Like, she almost gave him a get out to not really tell her anything and just claim loyalty. And it does, it really made me miss some of those really loyal knight, Kingsguard, or just general relationships from Game of Thrones where you just know they would have rather like had every single finger chopped off than <laughs> snitch on the person that they love. And this motherfucker's just like, I did Snitched it. Up. And she doesn't love me. <sighs> so Alicent generously dismisses Kristen Cole. Yeah, she's like, bye. See you later. It's wedding time. We go to the King's Chambers and he's not doing great. He's clearly in a bad emotional state as well because he's sick. His arm is falling off. He's with Lord Strong, who is looking on with a lot of concern about the uh, perilous health state of the king. And Viserys clearly emotional is like, hey, I could. I wish I had been a great warrior. I think I could have been a great warrior. I, th- I wish I had been tested, right? And then Lionel Strong, and this shows actually why he is the right advisor for Viserys, doesn't say as... Viserys notes many would have said, oh, you would have been a match for Aegon the Conqueror himself. He says, why would you want to be tested in war? Many who have been tested only wish that it had never happened. Mm -hmm. And though Viserys is actually wounded by the fact that like he didn't give him that kind of ego boost of saying you would have been a great warrior. He also acknowledges you told me the truth and that's great. Okay. I have two questions I need to ask you as the, as the maester, right? So there is Grand Maester Melos turns down two herbal poultices that one of the other- The poultice goes for the leeches. Maesters. (laughs) That seemed like it could become prominent to me. Like, is Melos not trying to save him? Is he just stuck in the old ways? Will we see? I think it was like, Olwyn, will that become a new maester? I thought that was really interesting moment. I think Melos is doing his best, but- you know, medical care is just extremely limited. That's it. Like they, <laughs> their knowledge of the human body, mm-hmm. of epidemiology, of bacterial infection, like they don't 
know anything. They've probably got, you know, they've got like the poultice or the leeches. It's not like they've got a tremendous amount of like different remedies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just his way. The other thing I would say that I thought was interesting that I wanted to get your take on is that before we've seen Alison and she's called and she has to sleep with the king when he's really gross. Strong does her a real solid here where he says, She's otherwise engaged and then gives yeah. him a sleeping draft. And then we see the strong sons later at the wedding seemingly lean towards Alicent's side. So are we seeing some kind of allegiance here? Or is it just kindness from strong? Because I think that's a really kind thing to do. I think it was partially a kindness. And I also think it was strong doing the thing that Kristen Cole should do, which is being like, here's a topic that's none of my business. So it's none of my business. I don't know what the like queen's that. up to. That's none of my business. <laughs> not involved in that. Yeah. I don't know where she is. I'm not, my job is not to follow the queen around. And I think very wisely and generously to Alison, just as like, I don't know where she is. Go to sleep. Yeah. We go to the wedding, which as we know, are always happy. Nothing bad ever happens. Cleanly executed, <laughs> wonderful affairs in Westeros. Rhaenyra and Laenor streak towards the capital on their dragons. The Valerian fleet is coming in. And then, you know, Harold Westerling, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, who I think got this job because he's got the best voice. He's a booming, <laughs> basso, Scottish, inflected brogue, is like introducing everyone. We meet Jason Lannister again, the, the Lord of Castle Rock, who makes the tremendous decision to go to the high table and make like a women be shopping joke, essentially. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so bad. You know, we're like, oh, well, women oh. can't go to war because they're always getting dressed. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> they're going to be like, and it's just He's like, he is the worst. worst. And I love, this is the chemistry between Paddy and Millie is so great. Because Paddy Patty's just knows, really good. like, Viserys knows his daughter and the little look they give to each other when yeah. he walks away. And he's the, just uh, like... The little eye roll and look. It's that acknowledgement of like, you were right. You could never have married that fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm sorry, man. And it was so Yeah, cute. you're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I proposed him. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. <laughs> what was I thinking? At one point, Gerald Royce comes up and is cutting off the high towers, which I think is a tremendous breach of etiquette and is about, certainly like about to, I think, raise the issue of the late Lady Rhea mm -hmm. when all of a sudden these trumpets blare and in comes House Valerian and now the king's going to make his speech. He's in the midst of his speech when dun, in dun, walks dun. Queen Alice and dun, dun, and she is wearing this dress of startling green. Laris, the clubfoot, leans over to his brother Harwin. Everybody's on their feet now. And he and he says, Well, first of all, Harwin's like, King's not gonna be happy about that, right? That's his wife just arrives in the middle of the speech, and now he has to like start his speech again. And then Laris, perhaps noting, you know, showing that he is the smarter mm -hmm. one of the two, able to read the emotional and subtextual cues of what's going on here, says hey, you know what the, the color of the Hightower beacon is when they're calling their banished war? It is green. So clearly here is Alicent, I think, feeling her most isolated, her most betrayed, her most scared. Otto is gone. And she's putting up the flag and saying, okay, my family rallied to me. I need backup uh -huh. now. This, I'm calling you. I need you. Very badass moment. The wedding goes kind of pretty okay. Damon, you know, watches all of the stuff happening. He kind of is watching Rhaenyra dance with Laenor with something like jealousy or longing. There's some kind of charged, 
you know, feeling there. Kristen Cole is like on the side of the Paul fuming, Queen Alicent. Being so obvious once again, this man's never been subtle in his life. Being an absolute fucking dick. And then Lord Gerald comes yeah. up and is like, hey, Damon, you killed uh, Lady Rhea, didn't you? Damon's like, wait, wait, who are you? Uh, he's like, I'm Gerald Royce. And first of all, wild that no one goes, hey, well, let's handle this during office hours. <laughs> now the king and Lord Strong are both looking on like, he probably did this. Like, they're like, uh. Like, what? <laughs> I, I mean, this is, pro- like, to be fair, there's no way this is the first time that thought has occurred no. to anybody here. Yeah. No, no, I yeah, think yeah. earlier but you're we, right. we didn't touch on it because it's so brief, but like, when Viserys finds out from Corlys, he definitely has a moment of like, but wasn't she a good hunter? Why would yeah. that happen? So I, but I love that because Lord Strong's just like, oh, what have I gotten myself into with this murder family? <sighs> yeah, he's like, fuck. <laughs> Putting out more fires here. Damon denies it and then uh, says, and by the way, I'll be flying to the Vale soon to talk to Lady Aaron to petition you know, for my right as the husband of the late Rhea Royce, who was the heir to Runestone, the wonderful and ancient castle of Runestone, the jewel in the eye of the ancient house Royce, that's mine now because she died and I was her husband. So I'll be uh, going to get that for myself. <laughs> During the festivities, Damon steals a dance with Lena. Lenor, again, tremendously unwisely is talking to Sir Joffrey at the, let's not do this now, but uh, whatever. Joff then tells Laner, hey, I figured it out. The secret lover. It's Sir Kristen Cole. At which point they should have gone, oh, that's awesome. Okay. Good. Glad we know that. We'll deal with that another day. That's it. Yeah. We'll deal with that some other time. Mm -mm. But Joffrey, you know, harbinger of a fatal beating to come, insists not to put it, not to make it his fault, but he, he's like, actually, this is great because look, she knows something about you and you know something about her. And so now there's some reciprocity to this kind of leverage relationship that you have. He's someone who understands how to play the game. I will say that. Like, he understands the way these things usually happen. The problem is he could see that Kristen Cole was so pressed that he was literally stewing publicly in the side of the wedding. I would say probably not the best time to approach him and kind of like, half threaten him, half offer him like a weird allegiance. It was a bad timing. The timing, it's the right idea. At the wrong time. Yeah. And it's absolutely the wrong time. (laughs) There's more dancing. Damon uh, breaks into Dance with Rhaenyra. They have a little argument in High Valerian. Damon is like, uh, Lanor's boring, man. You need an exciting guy. And Rhaenyra is like, yeah, but this is like the political marriage. Like, uh, what are you talking idiot. about? Like, <laughs> you fucking moron. Uh, Damon then makes his feelings plain. He's like, what about us? Are we going to give us a chance? Like, what are we going to do? And she's like, okay, then do it. I call your bluff right now. I'm here. You're here. Let's do something. Meanwhile, Viserys is watching all of this. He is getting so mad because he's starting to understand. With mounting alarm. <laughs> yeah. When all of a sudden there's a scream and there's a crush of bodies, chaos. There's some kind of thing happening in the back of the hall. And what is it? It is Sir Kristen Cole beating Sir Joffrey's face in. Lenor is thrown down. Rhaenyra is thrown to the side. The Kingsguard, well, like, aside from the fact that the Kingsguard is actively involved Mm -hmm. in this, 
Where is the rest of the Kingsguard? Unclear. Where is the rest of the guards of the castle? Unclear. Lionel Strong looks over at his son, Sir Harwin, Breakbones, so named because he is, everybody says, the strongest knight in the realm, the strongest guy in he the realm. He just juggernauts them. He goes through. Nobody is stopping He's absolutely juggernaut. Dude's bouncing yeah. off him. He's like elbowing people in the face. They're flying out of frame. He cuts all the way through this scrum picks up Rhaenyra, throws her over his shoulder and gets out of there. And then as everything kind of clears out, we see what's happening. Cole is on top of Joffrey, is beating his face in uh, and eventually has murdered him in a, in a disgusting like pool of blood. Homophobic hate crime. Absolute hate crime. What was said between the two? Unknown, but probably some sort of blackmail attempt. You know what? I think, I actually think Kristen is so scared now that yeah, he knows terrified. Rhaenyra is not going to marry him, he's so scared of losing his honor, of being kicked out of the king's guard, of of muddying his white cloak and, and what it means for him and his family and blah, blah, blah. I think he just probably did it. He's like, this is somebody who knows. He doesn't know that Lenor knows. You know, he knows that Joffrey knows. And now he killed Joffrey and Joffrey doesn't know. But also... How did he get away with that? Because he just killed a lord in the middle of this wedding. <sighs> well, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that next episode. Should he indeed have gotten away with that? Well, I will say that I think you're right in the sense that I don't think there's any rational thoughts going through Chris no. Nicole's mind. That said, I could also see a pure fear response, right? Where he's yeah. already feeling pressed because he broke his vows for the princess. And now here is the princess's betrothed's boyfriend mm -hmm. who is threatening him perhaps on behalf of the princess, perhaps on behalf, like he she doesn't, doesn't know. know where this is coming from. So he just reacts with a pure fight or flight response and it's absolute fight. This yes. is definitely a paranoia. Viserys is paranoid. Alicent's paranoid. Rhaenyra, the only one who's not really paranoid, she's like, everything's going great. Yeah, this is going great. But you know, that that obviously changes, I think, as we, you know, with Joffrey is dead sadly, and we see Lenor mourning him publicly in the middle of the very, hall. Very, very sad. And then the last scene is like one of the most heartbreaking scenes that I've seen in a long time. When, yeah. They clear the hall in order to, they move the wedding up. There's supposed to be, you know, several days of tournaments and feasting and stuff. This shit's unstable. They, they have to do They're it. They're like, this is too crazy. We can't wait six, seven days. Who knows what's going to happen next? Let's just do this now. And they clear the hall. Sir Joffrey's blood is, they couldn't even get like mm -mm. someone in there to wipe the blood up. The blood is still on the ground. And Rhaenyra and Leonor are married. And as they are wedding, King Viserys collapses from whatever illness and whatever various maladies he is dealing with. And Rhaenyra is just looking in Lena's eyes and she is so sorry and just broken yeah. by this kind of, this actually feels like one of those moments. I, I'm not a fan of this because I, I don't love to punish people for sexuality or, or having a, a a life that goes against what people say it's supposed to be. But it definitely feels like she's having that moment of, look what I've fucking done. Yeah, I feel, yeah. Like I fucked around and now I'm finding out. And the worst thing is, I thought I was setting us up to have this brilliant life where we could be friends. And now I'm going to be married to a man Who's going to hate me? We were going to have our cake and eat it too, mm -hmm. essentially. And now look at this. And Lenor looks sh absolutely devastated, like hollowed out. It's, you know, shattered. Meanwhile, in the Godswood, Kristen Cole has somehow, some way, 
avoided getting thrown in the black cells. <laughs> they love going to the Godswood as well. Those motherfuckers are there like every day. Everyone's going. You'd think that Lord Corliss would be like, one of my guys, go go kill him. Go seize him. Mm-hmm. You know, whether the king decides to do it or not, like, go get that guy. But somehow Cole gets outside, gets to the Godswood. It's very clear he's about to take his own life because he's thinking, well, I've just murdered a knight in the middle of the royal wedding. Everybody saw me do it. On top of that, I broke my vows. It's only a matter of time before the headsman's axe is descending on my neck. I might as well just do it first. Mm-hmm. But then the queen finds him and stops him. And it's clear by the way they're looking at each other that they're they're each the thing that the other person feels like they need in that moment. Someone who will protect and safeguard the secrets of the other. Very ironic because that is what Kristen could have gotten from Rhaenyra had she become queen and this hadn't have happened. But yeah, that is very interesting to me. The Alicent Kristen allegiance. Watch this space for what happens next. A really wonderful episode. And I love the way they kind of subverted the expectations of what would happen at at a Westeros wedding. Also, and, and changed the books a little bit because in the books, Kristen Cole kills Sir Joffrey at a tournament. There's a tournament before the wedding. Which is obviously acceptable to a point. Yeah, and which would be fine. Like, everybody would just be like, oh, that's not a big deal. That's a shame. He actually, like, maims break bones during one part of the tournament, and everybody started calling him broken bones, which is really (laughs) funny. Harsh, (laughs) but hilarious. Harsh, but hilarious. And then he kills Sir Joffrey. This is during a tournament, but they changed it for this, and I think it works. It certainly makes it more you know, makes the stain of bad blood Mm -hmm. a lot brighter and a lot stronger. And also I think it sets up a really good antagonism between Rhaenyra and Cole, because the truth is Cole has just absolutely blown up her life. Yeah. Because that is her paramour who just killed her fiance's boyfriend. So now he has established what could be a life of just absolute horror for her living with Lane or having to have this terrible life. And in that way, it's such a, it's such a smart, but like cruel choice. I agree with you, Rosie, is really effective at setting up without saying anything, without spoiling anything. <laughs> without ruining it. The, the emotional, Kristen Cole's kind of like emotional context yeah. going forward and certainly the relationship between himself and Queen Allison, who I think, listen, if we see Kristen Cole again, not as a headless, dickless corpse, mm-hmm. it will be in large part because of the protection afforded yeah. him by Queen Alicent, and that's a big deal. Okay, up next, more House of the Dragon in Ask the Maester. A whole new batch of progressive merch just dropped at the Crooked Store with tees, hats, and bumper stickers that are all about demanding reproductive justice, canceling student debt, and making our democracy work. You can show where you stand even while you sit in traffic. Head to the Crooked store and pick out something to wear to the voting booth. Or just on your morning coffee run. You guys know how t-shirts wear. You can wear them anywhere. Check it out at crooked.com slash store. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise. 
the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like creator Kate. This Glade Orchid Neroli candle is so fresh. It's like fresh as watching a sunrise in Santorini. Yeah, I'm going to need more of those. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. Dragons have arrived on HBO Max. Have you been aware of this? Did you know that this is the case? Episode 5 now gone by. The new HBO original series House of the Dragon is a prequel set 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones. House of the Dragon tells the story of House Targaryen locked in an epic battle for the Iron Throne and power over the Seven Kingdoms. The epic series promises more drama and betrayal than ever. Listen to the official Game of Thrones podcast, House of the Dragon, on HBO Max, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to celebrate, we're bringing back Ask the Maester to answer your questions. Question number one. This week comes from John. Why did Damon marry Rhea Royce? The Royces are not a particularly powerful house and are not the Lords of the Vale. What political benefit was gained from this marriage? As we march towards the dance, it seems war could have been avoided if Damon and Rhaenyra wed. I think you're right. But the thing to understand about this is it wasn't Damon's choice. That's why he's so mad about it. And of course, he's a generally unreliable, just chaotic Jokerified human being, but it was not his choice to make. Damon and Viserys are the sons of Prince Balon the Brave, who was the fourth son of King Jaehaerys and good Queen Alicent. Now, until Balon's tragic death, which I'll get to in a second, he was immensely popular mm-hmm. as the heir apparent. Everybody agreed that this is a great choice, and Jaehaerys was happy with it as well. And so the betrothals of Balon's children would have been important vehicles of statecraft and would have been set up and decided by Jaehaerys with significant input from Alisanne, who was as often Jaehaerys's partner in this. And certainly Prince Balon would have had a say as well. Viserys was 16 years old. Now, understanding that the show has fudged with ages and years a little bit, in the books, Viserys was 16 when, in the year 93, he was wedded to the 11-year-old Emma Aaron, herself a half-Targaryen on her mother's side. The books helpfully point out that the union was not consummated for another two years when Emma was 13. So no problem at all. Wow, no problem. That was a good choice. Oh, yeah. It's all good. All good. (laughs) It's all all better then. And Damon, when he was betrothed four years later in 97, was 16 years old when he wed Rhea. And we don't know her age at that time. And we certainly don't know how old she was when she was murdered by Damon. So... As for Rhaenyra, the show is fudged with the timelines, but according to the book, she was born the same exact year that Damon and Rhea were married in 97. So that wasn't really an option unless they were going to put a future hold on it, which, again, 
didn't seem necessary at that time. It's important to understand that though King Jaehaerys and Queen Alicent were clearly aged, coming to the ends of their natural lives and certainly their reigns, the succession looked pretty solid at that time. Yes, the heir before Balon, Prince Aemon, who, again, solid choice, everybody thought was a pretty good choice as well. He was killed tragically fighting pirates on Tarth. He was hit by an arrow that was intended for another guy. But when Balin became the next up, everybody was like, this is great. He was a dragon rider, uh, having claimed none other than Vagar. He was extremely courageous. He earned the sobriquet The Brave because he playfully punched Balerion the Black Dread in the nose when he was like a child. And he was a great warrior. He was knighted at 16. He, by all accounts, acquitted himself quite well in the defense of the Dornish marches when he was 23, fighting there, repelling Dornish raiders from the Stormlands. And he was close with his family. His older siblings as well loved him, Aemon and Daenerys. And by the way, Alysanne thought Daenerys, actually the oldest of Jaehaerys and Alysanne's children, Alysanne like significantly lobbied for Daenerys to be queen. It's like, she's our oldest. Why shouldn't she be queen? Jaehaerys ignored this and most of the realm did too, but Alicent argued for it. And then Balon was wedded to his sister Alyssa, who gave birth to their children, uh, Viserys and Daemon. So it looked rock solid at that particular time. The nobles respected him, the people loved him, and his family loved him. So it seemed like Balon was going to be king and everything was great. And then he got a, quote, stitch in his side and then had what they're calling a burst belly, was poisoned, what happened? Was this truly just like an appendix breaking or something? Stomach ache gone bad and then he died appendix breaking? Yeah, we don't know, but he died of seemingly natural, uh, some kind of natural malady, some kind of illness in 101. And that was basically the thing that set off the crisis that is now reaching its full measure with the story we're watching now. 101, of course, being the same year that they would eventually call the Great Council to figure out, okay, now who who is actually going to succeed old King Jaehaerys now that that Balon is, is off the board? Jonathan comes with another good marriage question. I like the themes here. This is a different Jonathan. Different Jonathan. We got John yeah. with the first marriage question. Jonathan with the second marriage question. And I really like this one that makes to pick some good questions. I, li- I like it too. It's a good one. With the appearance of Rhea Royce on the show and the extensive discussion of political marriages, how was it that both Viserys and Daemon were matched with brides from the Vale? This seems like a concentration of Targaryen political capital in one part of Westeros. And I'm intrigued by the thought process behind the pairings. This is a really, really interesting question. First of all, the Targaryens enjoyed good relations with the Vale from the start, back to the days of the conquest. The Vale, though it was preparing to fight, submitted bloodlessly because Visenya Targaryen, one of Aegon's sisters, took Ronal Aaron, the eventual heir of the Irie and the Vale and the son of Queen Regent Shara Aaron, took him for a joyride, <laughs> surprise joyride on her dragon a couple times around the mountains. And whether it was like the implicit threat of seeing her child on the back of a dragon, though by all accounts, Ronald was delighted at this joyride, or because of real affection and real appreciation at being kind of approached 
in a way mm-hmm. that wasn't immediately warlike, the veil submitted. Fast forward to the years of Jaehaerys, Viserys's betrothal to Emma Arryn, I think, appears pretty straightforward in terms of like what inspired this. Roderick Arryn, Emma's father, Lord of the Eyrie, Defender of the Veil, had known Queen Alicent since they were children. Apparently, they met very early on. And Roderick's sister was one of the Queen's very trusted ladies-in-waiting, who, as the histories make pains to point out, were extremely loyal to her, and she was beloved of them. And certainly, Roderick, who ascended to Lord of the Vale at a very early age, would have probably had to okay that, would have had to send her there and say, that's fine. He was known as a really smart guy, uniquely kind, certainly in the context of Westeros, the fact that People are mentioning that he's kind and it's in the books that this was a kind and generous guy. That means something. And very clearly, Jaehaerys and Alysanne trusted him. The king would name him Master of Laws after a breakout of a illness called the Shivers, which broke out during a winter that happened early in Jaehaerys' reign. It killed thousands, including the king and queen's daughter, Daenerys, who was really beloved of them. And that was particularly a shock because it was not, it was thought that the Targaryens don't really get sick that they played by different rules than everybody else. So that her death was was shocking, and it also wiped out a bunch of the king's advisors. And so the king named Roderick Master of Laws because he trusted him and he needed new bodies in there. And when it came time to seek a betrothal for Princess Dela, Roderick was put forward as one of three options by the queen, clearly at the queen's behest, alongside Boromund Baratheon, who is the grandfather of the Lord of Storm's End in House of the Dragon right now, and Tymon Lannister, an ancestor of Jason and Thailand Lannister. Now, Roderick was clearly the dark horse candidate, not the best looking guy. They say that he's like balding. Well, he's like 36. He has a beer belly. They they take pains to mention that his his body type and body shame him in the histories. Uh, and certainly, you know, there's a Lannister in there. He's not the richest. Um, but he'd been running the veil for 20 years, you know, since he was 16. So that's a mark in his favor. And again, the king and queen really liked him, trusted him. And having seen the way he comported himself as master of laws, thought that this is a competent, good guy with solid judgment who's, again, nice. The queen clearly preferred him, telling Dela that, listen, this is a kind and gentle man. He'll be an able protector. And then Dela, you know, met with all the suitors and shocking everyone except probably the queen was like, yeah, that's the guy. I like him. He seems, he seems really gentle and kind. That's the, that's the dude. Now, she would then give birth to their child, Emma, Viserys's eventual wife in the year 82. And then as a result of the birth, would die sometime after of a fever. This absolutely broke the queen's heart. And Lord Aaron as well, who like really, really loved her. He wanted her buried in the veil because he wanted to remain close to her. The queen was like, no, she's a Targaryen. We're going to cremate her according to family tradition and intern her. So that happens. And clearly, you know, just imagining Probably some hard feelings there between Lord Aaron and, and the crown because of that. He wanted to stay close to his wife. They said no. Alicent, on her part, the queen, blamed everyone for Dale's death. She's like, the, ma- the you know, the maesters weren't good enough. Roderick could have done more. And also you, my husband, Jaehaerys, why did you, we should have 
let her stay a little longer in King's Landing. Like we shouldn't have, you know, like you pushing this marriage, this is your fault. And this actually caused a significant rift in their relationship. So thinking about that kind of rift, you know, emotional rift at the very least between the veil and the realm and knowing how important purity of blood is to Targaryens, right? They want to keep the blood pure, right? And Emma was half Targaryen. So one, why this marriage? Well, you're bringing a Targaryen home. You're bringing a half Targaryen back into the blood. And two, because of these potentially hard feelings between the crown and Roderick, here's a way to patch that up, right? Wed her to Viserys. Maybe we can patch this up. Maybe we can make this better. Damon is maybe a little muddier, but also like consider he was the second son. Yes, like the heir in the spare says that, you know, potentially you have Damon around because he could ascend to the throne. So while I know we're saying the Royces aren't the house of the veil, they're not the overlord of the veil, it's still a good deal. Rhea is heir to Runestone. You know, you would imagine there's a, probably a scarcity of opportunities mm-hmm. for the second son, the, the not crown prince, to actually inherit a castle through the wedding deal. Like, that might not happen. So I think what we're looking at is, one, the first marriage, Viserys and Emma, which just made political sense and it was a way to bind up the wounds, potentially emotional wounds that Roderick Aaron had and certainly, like, politically bind the veil closer to the crown. And for Damon, I think it was a wedding of opportunity. He could befit his station. He'd become Lord of Runestone. And in such case that he would actually ascend to the throne, it's another good mark on him. Not to mention going forward in our stories, it's mentioned in the the world of Ice and Fire, that as we exit the era of the Dance of the Dragons, which we're watching, you know, roll out now in House of the Dragon, there's going to be a little bit of Aaron blood in all the Targaryen rulers that follow. That's how closely the Vale and the Targaryen family are allied. So it actually makes sense in the context of the broader history. Connor asks, speaking of bloodlines, with so much talk about Valerian bloodlines this week, I got to thinking about the primary ethnic groups in Westeros. As far as I can tell, there are four. Valerians, Targaryens and Valerions, the Rhoynar, Dawn, Andals, the Vane and Arons, question mark, I think, and the First Men, Northern Houses and the High Towers. Is there a hierarchy du jour in terms of those groups and the desirability in a spouse or ally? That's what we were asking. Is, is there racism? Is there racism in Westeros? This is an interesting question. Well, first of all, the Valerians, we need to unpack a little bit. So the Valerians are an ethnic group, right? Uh, descending from old Valeria, the Targaryens, the Valerians come from there. And I think it's important to understand that what makes the Targaryens so special is they are the only surviving dragon-riding family from Valeria. Whether you want to consider that a separate ethnicity from Valerians writ large, I would not. But Valerians are, like, not uncommon. Mm-hmm. They, they colonized a lot of Essos. And the free cities of Essos are significantly populated by descendants of Valerians. So... There's a lot of blood out there from Valeria, but the Targaryens are special because, again, they are the only surviving dragon-riding family, and Valeria was an oligarchy. There's no high king, but it was ruled by, you know, its collection of dragon-riding households of which the Valerians were one. So I think we, yeah, we can call the Valerians an ethnic group, though obviously a very rare one. 
with the understanding that the Targaryens are separately above that because they have dragons. The Rhoynar, yes, again, hailing from Essos, from the area around the River Rhoyne. The Andals. So the Andals, if you had to like create a hierarchy, I think you would say that Andal culture is, I think, inarguably the dominant culture of Westeros, uh, certainly south of the neck and certainly politically, economically, in terms of, you know, the way that the kingdom is run. Aegon converted to the Faith of the Seven, which is the Andal faith, soon after he took on his conquest. And that was really important politically so that people would accept him. So I think you'd say that the Andals really are the kind of like dominant cultural force, ethnic force in Westeros. And then, of course, the first men who are still around, still very strong, you know, of course, north of the neck is basically first men country. It's primarily families of, of pure first men descent up there with some notable holdouts. You know, the Manderleys come from the south and they were taken in by the Starks, notably centuries ago. But they come from the south and come from an Andal descent. But yeah, it would be the Andals as kind of like the dominant cultural force. Even the Targaryens had to adopt Andal customs in order mm. to be accepted as the rulers of Westeros. And when they didn't do that, see the rules of Anus, <laughs> the second <laughs> king of Westeros, and Magor, the absolutely, you know, terrible third king, bad things happen, rebellions, wars, etc. Okay. Andrew asks, I feel like this is a very good catch and also something I wish Renera would have possibly considered. So Andrew asks, after Renera and Sir Kristen Cole get it on and Damon spreads his partially true rumor about the princess, the princess flatly denies having lost her virtue when she speaks to her father. Is there any way the king sent the moon tea to her more as a test than as an actual remedy? Um, I, I guess it's possible. And Viserys is certainly a smart guy, smart enough to come up with that. Though I think in terms of his character, probably not manipulative enough to actually carry it out. But I, I think, no, I lean no because Viserys more than anything just wants mm-hmm. to believe what Rhaenyra tells him. And he's got a real blind spot when it comes to her and when it comes to their relationship. Look at how stubborn he's being, you know, in supporting her as princess of Dragonstone, the crown princess, despite like significant blowback that he's getting from everybody. And I think he, more than anything, sent the T as a way to say, Mm -hmm. okay, we made this deal, now sign on the dotted line and just drink this, put my mind at ease that there's not going to be any bastards running out, out here and let's just move on. So I think no, but you never know. You never know, you never know. Quicksloth asks, what's up with the Strong family and their dynamics? Ah, the Strongs. Okay, so the Strongs are a ancient house of the Riverlands. Here's a fun fact. They are descended from the First Men. And oftentimes in this story, you can kind of tell who the First Men families are because their names are these shorter, punchier, more, for lack of a better word, primitive sounding names that are like a reference to something Direct, strong. They were a strong mud, stark. Those are the kind of first met Royce. These are the kind of uh, names that you often find associated with families descended from the first men. So that the strongs come from the first men. They've been around the Riverlands for a while. We don't exactly know where they hail from, but kind of rewinding to the reign of Magor the Cruel. So Magor was married to 
Alice Haraway. <laughs> Alice Haraway, there's a lot, I'm, I'm simplifying this a lot, but Alice Haraway, Magor had been trying really hard to create an heir. He knew he had to solidify his hold on the throne because he was fighting a vicious religious war against the kind of like extremist sects of the faith of the seven because they didn't accept him because for various reasons he had usurped the throne for one and two, his marriage and relationship proclivities were definitely in defiance of the things that the faith set out. And Alice Haraway ended up giving birth to a stillborn child with no eyes that was, quote, monstrous. And Magor's reaction to this was that that's not mine my wife is cheating on me. I'm going to kill all the Haraways. So he wipes out the Haraway family. And then he sets up like this big winner-take-all tournament to see who can win Hall, formerly the House of Castle of the Haraways. House Towers wins that. House Towers basically goes broke when at the end of Magor's reign as Jaehaerys is ascending, they had to give up a bunch of land for legal reasons. Their earning power was curtailed. They didn't have any savings. They didn't have a lot of heirs that were young and healthy enough to, like, carry on the lineage. They made the really, really poor decision of naming one of their, the kind of last remaining person of their family, Magor, after (laughs) the terrible king that was just ruling. And so eventually that castle came up for grabs because House Towers went extinct and broke. Jaehaerys gave Heron Hall to uh, the Strongs and Bywin Strong became Lord of Harrenhal. Now, Bywin's older brother, Luca Strong, was a member of the King's Guard. Call him Lusty Luke. They call him Lusty Luke because it turned out this guy broke his fucking vows like Wilt Chamberlain broke his vows, like broke the records in a way that will never be surpassed. He had three secret families. <laughs> <laughs> Lifetime movie style. <laughs> and, like, and like a gaggle of children, right? So this comes to light. And this is important because this is context for Cole's reaction, I think. And it certainly would have been something that was in Kristen Cole's mind. So this comes to light. Actually, uh, Ryan Redwine, the previous Lord Commander of the Kingsguard before Sir Harold Westerling, the guy who died in between episodes one and two. (laughs) They were just like, oh, he died. He was old. Ryan Redwine uh, snitched out (laughs) Lusty Luke. Lusty Luke appears before the king throws himself on the king's mercy, right? They brought all his families, all his secret families and his kids there. (laughs) They moried him. It was like, you are everyone's father. Yeah, you are the father of everybody here. (laughs) And Lusty Luke falls on his knees and he's begging the king's forgiveness, which apparently would have almost happened. Like, Jaehaerys was leaning towards, okay, I'll just send this fucking guy to the wall. Mm -hmm. But then he said, for the good of my family and my children, please, like, don't uh, execute me. <laughs> which like, family? Basically, uh, which one? And basically, <laughs> like, admitting, like, I did it. So uh, they chopped his dick off <laughs> and they sent him to the wall. This, of course, would have been one of the things that they tell you in, like, Kingsguard Orientation Day. Hey, don't be like Lusty Luke. <laughs> which was only, again, like, only, like, 30 to 40-ish years ago. It was not like that. Oh, yeah, so it's recent memory. It's it, recent, it's recent memory. memory, and it w- and it was a scandalous thing that the fucking common folk absolutely loved. They wrote songs about this guy. <laughs> and so 
that's going to be in the back of Kristen Cole's mind, uh, you know, when he reacts the way he does in this episode. Okay, so then Lionel Strong ascends to the castle, and, you know, mostly what we know about Lionel is just he is a very quiet guy, a very smart man who holds his tongue. He uh, studied the Citadel for a while and became an expert at the law, which King Jaehaerys had done a lot to kind of uh, reform and to unify. At that time, there were a bunch of different like local laws, some of which kind of didn't make sense as a cohesive whole when you looked at the realm. And then there were certain areas where they were still doing the prima nocte like uh, thing uh, where the Lord on the wedding night of a, of a couple gets to say, hey, I get to sleep with the woman before anybody else, which was terrible. So there was a lot of reforming. And so Lionel Strong, a student of that reform, became master of laws because he was such an expert at it. Then, of course, there's Harwin Strong, who was Lionel's oldest son. We met this episode, Breakbones, super, super strong guy. And then his younger son is Laris the Clubfoot, who is showing us, you know, what he's about. So... Where do they come from before Harrenhal? We're not actually sure, actually. But somewhere in the Riverlands, we don't know what their seat was. But, you know, we should keep in mind that ever since uh, Heron the Black built Harrenhal and then was burned alive in it shortly thereafter, along with all of his sons, everybody who lives in Harrenhal just encounters problems. <laughs> we saw what happened with the Haraways. They got wiped out in towers. They went broke. They died out. And now it's the Strongs. Um, how will they do? I guess we'll have to see. How will they fare? Um, Amanda asks, why do you think Damon went to the Vale? Unfortunately, I think he went to kill his wife. I think I he don't. went to kill Rhea. Yeah, I think he very, very clearly went to kill his wife. And I think that's really sad and fucked up. You know, there's that moment where he kind of walks away and she's saying, oh, I knew you couldn't finish. And then it, he turns around and you could kind of convince yourself, oh, he wasn't going to kill her until that, which doesn't make it better. But I think he was just looking for a good enough rock, you know, honestly. So yeah, unfortunately, I think he was going to kill uh, his wife. I agree, because Viserys basically said, you can't get married to my daughter because you're already married. So he's like, well, yeah. I'm going to solve that by killing my wife. Yeah, very, very unfortunate. R.I.P. Royce. Last question. Okay, George says... Is Wildfire on the game board in the era of Hot D? I know it's associated with the Mad King, but was it discovered or developed earlier than his reign? Uh, it's probably not on the table. It was developed earlier in his reign. We first hear about it during the reign of Aegon IV, uh, Aegon the Unworthy, one of the worst kings, Magor aside. But that is kind of decades after this era. And of course... There's dragons flying around this era. So it's, uh, mm. while it may have been in development by the Alchemist Guild, we don't hear about it until about 174. And, you know, that's, you know, 50 some odd years after the story we're seeing now. So it's, I, my sense is we're not going to, we're not going to see it. That's it for Ask the Maester this week. Love hearing from you. Please send your questions to askthemaester at gmail.com. And don't miss the new HBO original series, House of the Dragon, now streaming on HBO Max, Sundays at 9. Up next, we leave Westeros for Middle-earth to discuss Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. We're stepping out of the airlock and into... 
the beautiful and spacious mines of Moria for Amazon's Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. We're going to cover the first half of the season, uh, episode one, Shadow of the Past, episode two, Adrift, episode three, Adar, episode four, The Great Wave. Your thoughts on this show uh, thus far into the season? I am enjoying it. I think we'd said this from the beginning when we did our early reactions, but I think it's a, a really great thing to watch alongside House of the Dragon because it's so different. It's kind of this expansive, slow burn world building that is far less political and more focused on kind of these these intimate character moments and relationships. Obviously, it's beautiful. Um, and I also think it's getting better with every episode. Uh, for me, it's like I need Elrond and Durin. Yes, it's the best. That is, I could spend all of my time with Elrond and Durin because it, that friendship is what it is about for me. Yeah, I totally agree. Like there's that moment in episode four where Durin finds Elrond sneaking around in the mines. He shouldn't be sneaking around, finds him sneaking around in the mines. Has already been suspecting Elrond didn't just fucking show up here. He's got an agenda. He didn't just miss me after 20 years. Like, and they argue a little bit. And then finally he's like, okay, we found something down there. Uh, you know, it's this really cool substance, lighter than silk, stronger than steel. It's fucking sick. It's amazing. If we can mine this thing, we're going to be rich. And Elrond's like, okay, but why don't I just like tell everybody this is great news. And then, Despite the fact that, like, there is still so much friction between the two, Durin immediately is, like, confides in him, well, well, my dad, in a way that, like, makes clear that Durin disagrees with this without openly mm -hmm. coming out, like, against his father, Durin the Third. Yeah. Durin the Fourth is like, well, I don't know. My dad says it's too perilous to, to mine it, and uh, this is the way we have to do it. I... That relationship is wonderful. And then when he like lets him keep the mithril yeah. sample, yeah, it was super cool. Did you know it was going to be mithril? Like at what point did you know what it was going to be? I didn't really put two and two together that that was the secret that Durham was keeping because I was so invested in the Durham and Elrond relationship and Disa as well is so great. Yeah. So the three of them together are so enjoyable. But as soon as they were down there and he was like, we found something. I was like, oh, it's Mithril. I was like, this makes sense. <laughs> like, you know, in the most recent movies we got before this were the Hobbit movies. And you see it in there that um, Bilbo gets given like a, a Mithril shirt that is like an mm -hmm. armor that the elves made. Uh, Nenya, the the elven ring of power that Galadriel has, that later on in, in the Lord of the Rings movies, that is made of Mithril. Um so it's like a really important substance. But again, I'm just like you. I love what it means for their friendship. Like it, And I feel like Elrond truly does want to be a good friend to Durin. So it's not like Durin is being fooled or anything, but he's so trustworthy. He just wants to share it with his bro. He's just like, I found this cool thing, man. Like, why don't you keep it? Like that to me is is the best the best stuff in the show and, and Robert Ameo and, and Owain Arthur are so good oh, together. Arthur, yeah. And it's, so I think, great. you know, it, it replicates something that people really loved from Lord of the Rings was that relationship between Legolas and Gimli, you know, this, this warring races of elves and dwarves, but they find this companionship or, or this friendship. And I think that getting to see that again is something that people are really excited for. 
And I thought it was kind of really cool to have that and then contrast it to like the more kind of horror focused fantasy stuff that they're doing, introducing the orcs, which again are like one of like the scariest fantasy creations ever. And they're doing a really interesting job here, kind of building out the the world of the orc. Yeah, like a history beyond just like they are pure evil. Yeah. It's like, who do they follow? Why do they follow them? What do they care about? What do they aim for? This notion of of creating this space that we assume is going to become Mordor that's like a space where evil can thrive and the orcs can thrive. Even in that, there is some grain in there of like, that's what everyone wants. They just want somewhere they can live. Like, sure, you're building it so that evil can thrive, but like, you know. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I, I, And I think they're doing a good job for, this is kind of like Hot D as well, is like, we're in a world where these projects are based on stuff where we already know the outcome. So introducing mystery is very hard, but both shows are really excelling at that. So like, who is the stranger? You know, that's one of the big questions everyone wants to know from the first four or five episodes. Who is this strange man who fell from a comet? Because that's not a character that is instantly recognizable. So let's get, let's, who is the stranger? Who do you think? Okay, so I originally was like, oh, it probably is just a new character because I really love the Harfoot stuff as well and get it's really interesting to have Poppy and Nori have this kind of secret and then have this guy become an ally to them. But I will say, I do now believe if he, he I believe he could be Sauron or I believe he could be connected to Sauron, like potentially going to become a ring wraith or something because... Uh, in the early episode of the show when Galadriel is in Sauron's lair, she's like, it's so cold, all the torches went out. And yeah. there seems to be this connection to coldness. And that's yeah. becoming a recurring thing. He, You know, he was near the fireflies and all the lights went out. And and I wonder if that's going to be that heartbreaking reveal is like that this is someone who is learning to be good, but is innately created to to cause something terrible. And obviously the other one is Halbrand, who is another character who was created for the show, who I think a lot of people also think he could be Sauron. So it's like, who's Sauron? Is that That's really the biggest theory here. It's like, which one could he secretly be? But also the stranger could be this, just like Hot D, they're kind of fudging the timeline as we know it, because a lot yeah. of this stuff is very different from how it was in the books so there's also a chance that like i think a lot of people when they saw the stranger they wondered if it was um gandalf or one of the wizards and they just kind of pushed that a little bit earlier for it to happen but i'm i'm really enjoying it and i just think the cast is so good and the production design is so good and bear mccreary's score is so good so it's a very it's 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 slow but it's very immersive i'm really appreciating seeing places we've only kind of just heard about, you know, seeing the Lord of the Rings version of Atlantis, this kind of like the greatest city of men mm-hmm. ever, the highest expression of their uh, of their culture and creation and ability um, that we know for a fact is going to get destroyed at some point. And we're yeah. seeing that, you know, we're, we're seeing the kind of, the quakes of that now is awesome. The fact that Isildur, who we know is going to cut off the swords rig. And then, and then Isildur destroy it. Yeah. No. 
would not do it. And also like you have like um, in episode four, like one of the creators confirmed that in the in the Hall of Laws where where Galadriel and Ellen Dill are kind of like working out what's going on there. I think it's episode three or episode four. And they see, you know, there's a sword and people were like, oh my God, that's the Narsil sword. And they were like, yeah, it is. So they're just like throwing these kind of tidbits and Easter eggs and and moments, like you said. And it's the Isildur thing is like really that's one of the most effective ones for me because he's just like, he's a he's kind of a bum, but like he's like a sweet, like happy bum. And he's like really kind. Yeah, he's just like a young guy who doesn't have any money yet. He's yeah, just he's like, just like yeah, fucking he's around. Like, like Just fucking around, looking for adventure. Very, very charming stuff. And it's, I feel like it's going to age very well. That's something I think about watching it a lot is like it's... People are going to be able to watch this with their kids yeah. for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And I think people are going to look back at it and be like, wow, that was like such a swing to like make this really slow burn kind of kind epic fantasy that's very much about just existing in the world rather than the kind of like brutality and, and visceral action of like a lot of prestige TV. So I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a fan. I know a lot of our listeners are fans. So I have a question because something kind of like hit my eyes and ears in an interesting way. So there's that scene from four where Celebrimbor Celebrimbor, as Elrond says, is is um, he's he's speaking with Elrond. Elrond's uh, you know standing like at the balcony, and then Celebrimbor's like, "I just all of a sudden had this memory that your father told me that I was going to have to like I'm paraphrasing now like put put myself in your hands like for something, and for some reason like it's just hitting me now that that." That conversation happened. And we know that Celebrimbor is going to forge the rings. Spoiler. And we know the rings are a very, very long-range plot to control Middle-earth. Is that the fact that he didn't remember that thing until that right moment? Is that some sort of, like, dark glamour that has been placed very, very deep in him. That's what I'm trying to work out is, like, it feels almost magical, like some scales just fell from his eyes. Yeah. Also, I'm like, is it another one of those moments that we loved so much from the first couple of episodes where it's like, is this just the nature of being an elf where you're alive for, like, 3,000 years? Yeah, true. That's a good point, actually. like, so many different memories. But I do think... And I think in the context of, of the wider show, I think that the, the, the glamour or magical kind of implantation or, or um, armoring of that memory until the moment that it needed to be there, I think that's very likely. What are the orcs building? Yeah. So I think, because so something that people had noticed from the first time that Amazon was doing these videos where they were showing where the Southlands is on the map, the kind of very famous... Tolkien Lord of the Rings map. It's in the same place as Mordor, what will become Mordor, at least part of it is. And the where they put the word the Southlands is, is right where the word Mordor would usually be. So I think what we're seeing with the reveal that we got in these episodes, that the mark that everyone's seeing, that some people thought, is it the Eye of Sauron? Is it the, is it the, the sword mm. that Theo has? It's actually a right. map it's to a map. the Southlands, to the two to the mountain range that will eventually become like the 
the base of Mordor. So I think what the orcs and potentially Adar, though we don't really know much about him, another character where it's unclear who he is, though he is an elf, which is very interesting. A corrupted elf, a, which is a corrupted super elf. fascinating, yeah. So I think that they're building what will become, you know, Mordor and the the base of Sauron's operations. What we kind of saw, you know, Mount Doom, all that kind of, yeah. that bleak space. It would fit in with the timeline that it hasn't been built yet, but it's on its way to be being built. But I'm very interested because I also feel like it's unclear whether Adar is actually a follower of Sauron or not. I feel like he's much, there's a little bit more complexity there of like, is this someone who actually just wants freedom for the orcs and to create a space for the orcs outside it's, of Sauron? It seemed like a, a wonderful performance by Joseph Maul, who played mm-hmm. uh, Benjamin Stark, of course. It You do get the sense that whatever his previous life is an elf, something, at least this was my interpretation, I like yours also, that he's like, he's actually motivated by his empathy weirdly and his kinship with orcs. But I wonder if there isn't something of his elf self that remains. And maybe it's that, maybe it's that like wanting to cooperate, you know, orcs famously will just get into violent fights with each other at the drop of a hat and then murder each other over nothing. Whereas it seems like Oren, like, there's something else. Yeah, they're following Adar. They're, they chant his name. They listen to his yeah. orders. It's very unusual. So I think as well, I'm sure if we're adding to the Sauron pile, I'm sure there are people who probably believe that Adar might be a version of Sauron. Because Sauron has had many different forms. People believe we'll probably see him as Anatar, which is the form of of a gift giver, the, the charming man who convinces the elves to create the rings, you know? So honestly, seeing as Celebrimbor is already planning. <laughs> um, seeing as he's already kind of scheming on the notion of creating this thing, maybe Sauron is already back. That's the most interesting thing. And now right. we're halfway through the season. I don't know. I think it would be incredibly brave of them to not have Sauron in the first season. But I would assume that we are going to get a hint or a reveal or at least get introduced to someone who goes by one of the many names of Sauron. I don't want Halbrand to be evil because I really like the relationship for him between him and Galadriel as these kind of outsiders. Yeah. But I do believe he is charming. He's from the Southlands. He doesn't want to go back there. He's good at forging steel. So he could also yeah, be Sauron. Th- Everyone could be Sauron. <laughs> um, let me ask you something. If you live in Middle Earth and you find an evil looking part of a sword, <laughs> it is like... It, <laughs> One, don't Theo. touch it. Well, yeah, Theo, what do you do? Like, for How all, did his broken. mom, his mom is so it's, cool and smart. She is so sweet and She nice really and messed cool up by not teaching. He obviously, they're playing with the idea of like his hatred and bigotry towards the elves is like clouding any yeah. judgment. But also like, please, my guy. And you touched it and it created like a gnarly sign on your yeah. arm and you didn't like tell your mom or anything. Like, come on, my guy. It, first of all, it's broken, so you can't even use it. Yeah. Two, and it cut you. It cut you, and it looks evil. And when you're just even around it, 
the energy is evil. The energy and then the evil. orcs showed up. And also the only other person who has any knowledge of it is some old crazy guy who's like, oh, we're going to become evil now we both have to <laughs> yeah, mark. And, and I'd be like, no thanks. Who's name dropping Sauron left and right. <laughs> He's like, you heard of him, right? Seems chill. Yeah, and also, like, now the orcs are hunting you. Let's get rid of this thing. <laughs> what is the end game here? I know, I'm like, you could have just, like, buried it or something. I'm guessing that, like, so many evil artifacts in our lives, in our in our films, yeah. and in, of course, Lord of the Rings, The Ring of Power, we've seen it, my precious. I'm assuming that once you find that sword, especially if you're young and your brain hasn't fully developed yet because you're not 25 and also you're, like, very silly and you've been raised with, like, this hatred towards people who are looking after you, I feel like it probably gets its claws into you mentally and and it wants, it. you want to keep it around, even against, like, logical logical kind of choices so it has that magical evil artifact effect but still we are in the second age correct yes so like somewhere around this is my biggest four question. to six thousand years yes. before lord of the rings yeah yeah and the second age goes over three thousand years right yes i still feel like and i couldn't find a concrete answer for this i still feel like it's quite unclear where we are from the, because lots of different things are happening that would have happened over hundreds of years. But the yeah. general consensus, I think, is it is taking place around 1500, which is about halfway through. Though I would say, because of some of the stuff we've seen in Numenor, I would actually think it was a bit earlier. So I think that's the most interesting thing. But it is the second age. Most of the characters that we've met have a very long lifespan. So we're probably going to be with these characters for a fairly long time. Yeah. And it will be interesting to see how the humans and the the elves and the dwarves, how that all changes and interacts as it as it moves forward. Yeah, we think, you know, Numenor, it seems, lasted until towards the end of the Second Age. This is after their break with the elves. But Galadriel's planning to sail ships to the Middle Earth, which That's first it. happened in like 600, though this seems to be taking place more around like 1200. So maybe ships have already gone to Middle Earth. It's it's very interesting. And I, and I think it's probably, this is four weeks in to the most expensive TV show ever made with record-breaking viewership. And no one on the creative team has come out and been like, this is when it takes place. So it's probably for a reason is like my yeah. gut. <laughs> but I would love to see like a timeline. Same. Not based on the books because there's a lot of brilliant timelines from the books. But when this, this season is done, I would love to see if they release like an official timeline of sort of when everything is occurring. And we have, we've heard your pleas. We will be keeping a tighter track on the rings of power as we slip the rings uh, deftly onto our fingers and hope that they're not evil. <laughs> That's it for episode one this week. A big thank you to Rosie Knight. Rosie, plugs, plugs, plugs. What have you to plug? Uh, if you like Lord of the Rings, I am covering it every week at IGN. I have a ton of cool stuff coming out at Nerdist, obviously. IGN, Polygon, bunch of rad comics coverage. You can follow me on Instagram and Letterboxd, Rosie Marks, M-A-R-X. And hopefully I'll have some more cool comic book news to announce soon. And here, of course, with Jason. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, if you want to read Rosie's coverage of Rings of Power and everything else, we're going to have links to that in the show notes so you can follow along. 
Catch the next episode on September 30th. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube and follow at XRVPod on Twitter. We've got a Discord show up there. Please come introduce yourself. Rosie and I are active in there. The community is wonderful and very welcoming, and we'd love to hear from you. Don't forget, send your House of the Dragon queries to askthemaester at gmail.com. And of course, a reminder, our second episode this week, we'll be covering She-Hulk, interviewing She-Hulk, head writer Jessica Gao, and heading back to Star Wars to cover Andor episodes one through three five-star reviews we want five-star reviews leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice here's a wonderful five-star review from manderson jr the nerd friends i needed i recently moved to ca from ohio and in doing so lost the friends i used to go see all the mcu movies with on opening night having this podcast gives me the space i need to nerd out and listen to people discuss the franchises in the way i need that's so wonderful thank you manderson thank you that's the best oh that was really nice X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. See you on the next episode. Bye. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.